under-30s are to be given an alternative to the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine. Is the world about to open up just for certain demographics? Columbus Day is at the center of a dispute in Philadelphia and Venice's town council will restrict rentals during the famous Biennale. Monocle's editors tackle those topics today on the late edition here on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to the late edition here on Monocle 24. It's Thursday the 8th of April and I'm Carlotta Rubello coming to you from Studio 2 at Midori House in London. I'm joined here in the studio by Monocle's culture editor Chiara Ramella and on the line from New York City by our correspondent there, Henry Rees Sheridan. Chiara, Henry, great having you both on the show with us today. Uh, Chiara, you're not usually with us on a Thursday. Uh, you take over the late edition airwaves on a Wednesday uh, tradition. Well, how have you been and how are things in the world of magazine? Well, first of all, let me just say I'm so happy to make this new bunch of friends. <laughs> um, no, it, things have been really busy in magazine world. It's production week for our May issue, so the press is ready to be whizzing. We're just checking the final pages. And I think we have quite um, quite an extraordinary issue on the way. I'm particularly proud of the culture um, section, obviously. I would be, wouldn't I? Um, but anyway, um, because I think I've taken a bit of a tangential look at how the domestic space can be used for art purposes. So, um, you know, do be on the lookout for that. And then just hot of the heels of that, we've got the entrepreneurs issue coming up. And I think it's a really interesting time to be looking at how people have been rethinking their businesses, rethinking their lives, really, in the light of the last year. And a lot of people will be choosing to choose to, to, to choose a completely different life for themselves. And so it feels like a really momentous time to be rethinking, you know, work-life balance, where you want to be, what you want to do. So a bit of pressure, but exciting. Well, Henry, what about you? What have you been up to since last week? Uh, a little radio bird might have told me that I believe you've been vaccinated. I was scheduled to be vaccinated. And then the healthcare centre that I had booked the appointment at emailed me thanking me for cancelling the vaccination, uh, even though uh, I I hadn't done that. There was some kind of uh, snafu with the uh with the booking uh so i i'm happy to report that i'm i've i've rebooked to uh get vaccinated uh, on Sunday, actually. I'm very excited. Well, let's stay on the topic of potential vaccinations, potential cancellations, and eventually, at some point, I guess, we'll all get the vaccine by looking exactly at the latest developments uh, on and the uncertainty surrounding the Oxford-AstraZeneca jab. Uh, here in the UK, people under the age of 30 will be offered an alternative due to evidence which suggests there may be a link to rare blood clots. Although a review by the UK drugs regulator found no clear proof that the vaccine had caused the clots in question, the link is getting firmer. Uh, Chiara, I'll come to you on this first. Uh, European countries had tried to restrict uh, the use of the AstraZeneca vaccine earlier this year, um, particularly Germany and France, and had raised some concerns. We've now seen this decision by the UK as well. Um, are we getting, But we're still kind of at a point where you know the benefits still very clearly outweigh the risks, particularly when you compare it to, you know, what's here in question, which is COVID-19. Yeah, I mean, I think that I 
personally, as a female, um, the age of 30, I've done my fair bit of research on this because, you know, you feel like you are in the headlines and you are the specific, I guess, demographic that would be particularly affected by this. And being a female of the age of 30, I'm just over the bracket in the UK that won't um, that, that, that won't be offered an alternative. So there is a chance that I will get the AstraZeneca vaccine in the end. And as you say, um, there's plenty of information going round about how not only there are many other occasions in life that may be riskier statistically, there may be other medications that will be, that may be statistically riskier. I mean, one that jumps out to me particularly, given that we are talking about a demographic that is females in their 20s, 30s, is the ri- the risk of blood clots caused by taking a contraceptive pill, which is significantly higher and definitely not something that is discussed in headlines normally. Obviously, something that, um, you know, it is is not quite as concentrated a you know media focus at the moment. What I will say that I think is particularly fascinating in terms of the discussion around alternatives to the AstraZeneca vaccine in the UK right now and in Europe is that before the UK decided to offer the under 30s an alternative, there were so many discussions around whether the doubts around AstraZeneca in Europe, in places like France or Italy, were somewhat politically motivated. You know, for many, many weeks on this show, we have discussed, you know, is the fact that Macron is is, is putting the seeds of doubt around AstraZeneca something of a bit of a rebuttal because... There have always been there were there have obviously been delays in the consignment of the AstraZeneca vaccine. Same for Italy. And now with this decision by the UK, I think it will be really interesting to see how it plays politically in the UK as well. You know, I was just at the news agents earlier today and you can see on some of the most staunch kind of Tory tabloids, um, you know, headlines like keep calm and keep jabbing kind of thing. So There is a sense that the AstraZeneca vaccine has become so linked with UK prowess that at some point you're not going to be able to accept there are setbacks even in the UK. So it's interesting how the scientific evidence always comes with a bit of a side helping of political awareness at the same time so that the UK is making this decision but everyone is still very, very keen on making sure that the overall message is that it's safe and that it is a win for the UK nonetheless because no one in the UK is interested in AstraZeneca taking a big dip in popularity. Well, you're talking there about, you know, the political implications and it'll be really interesting to see how that plays out. And you just mentioned they're one of the headlines you've seen. Another thing this has prompted, particularly in the media and the written press, particularly here in the UK, uh, is how, you know, now a lot of the majority of young adults, the under 30s, uh, don't actually know when they will be vaccinated. And, you know, as the conversation about vaccine passports continues to carry on in this country, um, we might be getting to a point where we'll have um, part of the country open to just certain people. And uh, Henry, with this in mind, I kind of wanted to talk to you now because, you know, President Joe Biden has pledged to make the vaccine available for all adults. So that is everyone over 18 years old by the 19th of April. And that's really soon. And it's just incredible to see the difference of approaches and the difference in reality. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah. So it was announced uh, today that the the initial target of May the 1st uh, for what's referred to as universal eligibility 
in the US. That's when all adults over the age of 16 have access uh, to a vaccine. Uh, has been brought forward uh, a couple of weeks uh, to the to the 19th of April. Um, Biden's been in close correspondence with uh, the the heads of uh, the various states in America, and and what this is really doing is bringing the deadline forward in line with uh, many of of the of the states existing deadlines. Um, uh, so so it's it's kind of a uh, like a reaction to uh, I suppose what you could call. Uh, and, and uh, a good performance uh, on the part of the of the states that are responsible for administrating the vaccines locally to Americans. Um, Biden was very careful to qualify that just because the date has been brought forward, which is obviously good news, it doesn't matter. Rather, it doesn't mean that the country is in the the clear yet. Uh, there's there's a kind of uh, we're in a state of limbo in America at the moment, slight uh, sense of, of cognitive dissonance, uh, because in spite of the fact that the uh, the the vaccinations are, are pushing ahead uh, at quite a clip, uh, somewhat paradoxically, it, it's not having a, a huge impact on the transmission rates of the virus within the country. Uh, this is in part due to uh, the fact that there are new uh, strains of the virus emerging, which are impervious to the uh, to the vaccinations or, or less uh, uh, less susceptible to them. Uh, and it's also due to the fact, and Biden was keen to put an emphasis on this, uh, that there is a quite wide range of uh, uh, different levels of reopening practiced throughout America, depending uh, on different local governments, particularly state by state. Uh, and he was he was clear to uh, uh, imply that essentially those Americans who are pushing forward with reopening measures, who want to get back to uh, life as quickly as possible, could be compromising the effort to finally get the 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 uh, coronavirus under control. Uh, so there was a kind of somewhat mixed message coming from the president. He he was at pains to to be clear that just because this this deadline is being brought forward, that it, it certainly doesn't mean the country is uh, out of the red yet. Well, let's move on now to a bit of identity politics. This is prompted by a group of Italian-Americans in Philadelphia protesting the renaming of Columbus Day in the city. Uh, Henry, you spotted this story for us, so please do the honours and be my guest. What's being discussed here and why the outrage? Yes, I'll begin by just explaining what Columbus Day is in America. So it's been a holiday which has been officially observed since uh, the 1930s. Uh, and it basically uh, celebrates uh, the the achievements of uh, Christopher Columbus, uh, a, a an Italian, uh, well, allegedly Italian uh, explorer who made uh, uh, several trips, uh, transatlantic trips in the 1400s, uh, and and is viewed to have paved the way, paved the way, excuse me, for widespread Western uh, uh, discovery of the Americas. Um, now, the 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 holiday 
originated or was advocated for uh, largely as a form of celebration of Italian-American identity and actually specifically in response to anti-Italian discrimination in the 1800s and early 1900s in America, uh, which was pronounced. Uh, What has got complicated in recent years uh, is the fact that uh, there's been widespread, fairly widespread acknowledgement of the fact that Columbus uh, wasn't a saint and, and perpetrated pretty heinous crimes against indigenous American communities in particular. Now, that's led uh, several jurisdictions across America to replace Columbus Day, the Columbus Day holiday, uh, with an Indigenous Peoples Day. Uh, this has been a popular kind of uh, rebranding, if you like, of the holiday. Uh, and there have been some other kind of variations on that theme too. Some places have kept Columbus Day while also uh, installing a, an Indigenous People's Day kind of alongside it at the same time to try to balance the interests. Now, the story that I sent you in particular pertains to a event in Philadelphia where basically Italian-American rights groups have filed a lawsuit against the city after Philadelphia's mayor try to replace the Columbus Day holiday with an Indigenous Peoples Day in the city. They allege that uh, essentially it, it, it disrespects Italian-Americans and the move uh, was made illegally and unilaterally at a time of increasing Italian-American prejudice. Um, and I think what I find... Well, there's two things I find interesting about this. First of all is the kind of... Um, competing rights claims between groups and the ways that the optics of the degree of discrimination that those groups face affects policy right so it's it's uh i i think that it's uh there are probably some eyebrows more eyebrows raised at the claim that there is is an increasing uh, anti-italian american discrimination in america uh than there is at the claim that there's a considerable amount of existing uh, indigenous uh, discrimination, excuse me, against Indigenous American groups ongoing. Uh, and, and the way that these competing rights claims interact uh, gets a little bit weird when you have kind of quote-unquote white ethnic groups, like Italian-Americans, uh, making claims alongside uh, uh, ethnic groups of colour. Uh, and I'm also interested in hearing uh, from Chiara the relationship between uh, Italian-American identity, which... Uh, uh, well, I won't. I won't comment on the character of that of that identity. But I, it strikes me that there's been a, that a gap has emerged between Italian, Italian, or Italian national and Italian American identity over the last century or so. Uh, that I, I want to get her views on. Well, I can guarantee you that Chiara did not seem the happiest here in the studio <laughs> when you claimed Columbus was allegedly Italian. So I'll let her respond to that. I mean, Chiara, do you? F- are you particularly fond of Christopher Columbus? Or, as Henry was saying there, is this um, very specific to Italian-Americans instead of, I guess, Italian-Italian? Well, I don't think that I was disappointed in in hearing that uh, Christopher Columbus is allegedly Italian. It's more that, I think in my mind, it's... It's quite funny how Christopher Columbus has been claimed as an Italian icon because in fact, you know, this obviously it, it is said that he was um born in in Genoa or at least in the in the region of Liguria. I personally have been to Noli, which is a small town in Liguria that has a plaque to him. 
But, I mean, he spent the vast majority of his time in, in Portugal and then was sent off uh, on his voyage by the, um, the the king and queen of, of, of Castilla, right? So it's not exactly like it was an Italian mission. So it seems to me that the Italians have claimed a historical figure that was convenient for them up to a certain point. <laughs> and then when it became clear that, it, particularly in, in, in recent times, it's been understood that that we that the the world has changed completely its approach to uh, from going from Christopher Columbus and the discovery in in inverted in inverted commas of the Americas to you know colonization mm. um then then suddenly that that narrative completely flips um so i would i would say you know in, in many ways there are plenty of people in spain that think that Cristobal Colón was Spanish because that's how he's known in Spain and there are plenty of theatres, squares, all sorts of, um, you know, public landmarks in Spain named after Colón when you think about it. So in my mind, he's not really that much of an Italian figure. Um, Though growing up, I remember there were, um, you know, cartoons and all sorts of kind of myths surrounding it. Um, and as what pertains, I guess, the, the, the different Italian-American and Italian-Italian identities, yes, I mean, it, it, it is a historical migration that has truly, I think, diverged from its uh, its original heritage. But I think I understand why there is a willingness to maintain that heritage, that link to heritage. And I can, you know, as as an Italian who has left Italy myself... I know that you do grasp onto parts of your past and your identity in a way that is is very relevant for your identity. But I do wonder whether making such a point about attaching that identity to Columbus is is <laughs> the, is the right thing after all. There are plenty of other um you know Italian figures that may be much more well suited to to Italian heritage pride than Columbus might ever be. Well, it, it is astonishing to read more into, you know, the claims in this suit, like even this is a, a quote saying that the mayor is, quote, unmistakably bent on prejudicing Italian-Americans um, and saying that, you know, Italian-Americans are uh, being prosecuted at levels not seen since the 1920s. This is quite wild, as much as I understand also as someone, um, you know, who lives in a country that's not their own. I've left Portugal and I completely understand that idea that you were just describing about you look for the bits of our identity that you have around you. But even with that in mind, this seems a bit um, a bit too much. Well, it goes back to what Henry was saying before, I think, which is very relevant, which is the sands have shifted in terms of the, the, the different competing claims in different minorities, ethnicities, and I think that the claims of a white minority at this point in time um, can feel like they're disproportionately looked at in a case like this when you're, you know, counterbalancing that with with the necessities of a whole another group of people that is not of a white background. And also, anti-Italian sentiment was a very real thing mm-hmm. more than a century ago, a century ago, I don't think the situation is quite the same right now. Whilst I think other competing claims from other groups may very well still be very, very relevant right now. 
Well, let's move swiftly along to the home country of Columbus himself, because the Italian city of Venice had decided to block the rental of private property during the busy citywide event, the Biennale. Well, Chiara, this has been officially called the Exhibition Blocking Edict. Uh, What is exactly being restricted here? Yeah, it's interesting. So the... Um, the regulations stipulate that a private residence cannot be used for more than 180 days in a row for the purposes of uh, hosting an exhibition and that includes um, installing and dismantling which is a big deal because exhibitions for the Biennale are notoriously very hard to put together. It takes a long time. Not only that, obviously the Biennale normally runs for about six months so already in itself would go over the 180 limit. It would probably go at around 220 and then you've also got the dismantling and and, and mounting on top of that. It matters because a lot of nations don't have the luxury to have a permanent pavilion in the very coveted areas of the Giardini and the Arsenale, so they have to find other locations for their exhibitions. And so often that means these beautiful palazzos, which often are private properties that get reused for the purposes of these exhibitions. Not only this, this new regulations stipulate that there has to be a year's interval between an exhibition and another. So if you were a private owner that did rent for a shorter amount of time for an exhibition for the art biennale you wouldn't be able to do that for the architecture biennale I think it's a shame because it's hard to understand why this is all happening, uh, really, because there have been huge, huge protests over the course of the last few years in terms of the fact that homes in Venice were not really being occupied by residents anymore and the impact of Airbnb and of the tourism economy into the city. The Biennale, much as it does, you know, to a certain extent take over the city, goes nowhere near the amount of takeover that day in, day out kind of tourist, the tourist attraction of Venice does um, cause for the city. So it's hard to understand, particularly in a situation um, like right now, where cultural institutions are embattled and a lot of the private owners of these palazzos do get the funds to maintain these palazzos in the state that they are through these kind of activities. So, and I think it's a shame for the visitors as well, because going to the Biennale and getting access to these private residences is one of the few chances you have to see these amazing places that normally are behind closed doors. And it's one of the joys of going to the Biennale that you do get this kind of secret Venice that not everybody gets to see. So to me, I feel a bit melancholy about it um, because some of my favourite memories of going to the Biennale take place in these amazing secret palazzos that perhaps you'll never see again, but you do get a glimpse of. And it is amazing. Well, Henry, to try to kind of look at the other side here of uh, the equation, uh, not that I'm uh, expecting you to go out and rent an entire palazzo uh, for whenever you decide to travel to Italy, but could this ultimately be a good thing for cities, you know, um, as Chiara alluded to to it there, you know, to be, avoid other cities uh, becoming so busy with events, shows and exhibitions, uh, meaning that, you know, the actual residents um, have a, 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 really, a zero chance chance of properly uh, enjoying the city where they live? I think it's a difficult question if you look at a place like Venice, and this also applies to uh, uh, probably dozens of cities across southern Europe, and it's it's possible that more cities like this will emerge in different parts of Europe uh, with demographic shifts in the future. The the economy is if it's going to remain you know like a, like a vibrant economy that economy is going to be a, a tourist based economy 
pending some kind of like uh, massive reinvestment in the area on the part of the Italian government or the EU that'll turn it into a tech sector or something. I mean, you know, Venice is going to be is is going to be a tourist town. So I think that when it comes to uh, ensuring a bearable quality of life for the people who live there on a permanent basis, and I think that's very important. And I think that you know. It, in Venice, you know, it does. They do seem to have been subjected to massive indignities and kind of uh, and 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 huge inconveniences. I know that a kind of like major cause of uh, a major cause in the, in the city in the last few years has been uh, trying to get a ban in place on on huge cruise ships coming into the lagoon there. The 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 question of 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 um, it's always going to be a question of kind of balancing what the right type of tourism is rather than trying to reduce tourism or change the amount of tourism coming in. And uh, I think this is what Chiara was getting at, if I heard her correctly. I, I do think that there are there are bigger issues than just the relatively kind of uh, uh, cultured and tame crowds that come in for the architecture. And art biennales, uh, uh, you know, seeing some of the some of these like incredible uh, uh, like private spaces that exist in in Venice and, and bringing some money to the city and 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 as Chiara says, like also enabling the owners of these historic buildings to continue to maintain them in the state that they're in. Um, I, I don't know if the energy could be better put elsewhere, but the question is what kind of tourism to cultivate rather than whether or not to cultivate tourism it's a difficult fact to accept for somebody who comes from venice uh and and doesn't like tourists or tourism which i completely get where they're coming from but ultimately you know that the non-negotiable fact is that it is it is going to be a tourist dependent economy for the foreseeable future well and if uh, listeners want to read more about this story do check out the monocle minute tomorrow uh, you can of course subscribe at monocle.com forward slash minute well that's all that we have time for on today's late edition a big thank you to our guests Chiara Ramella here in London and Henry Reese Sheridan in New York City and of course to our studio manager Louis Allen too I'm Carlotta Rebello in London the late edition is back at the same time tomorrow goodbye and thanks for being with us <laughs>